What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today my guest is Katherine Sanderson, and we're going to be talking about her book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. So check it out. Catherine is a researcher and she looks at social norms and different behaviors and everything like that. But anyways, the reason I picked up her book was because I, I dove into the topic of the bystander effect. I think this is just one of the, the most interesting and terrible parts of human nature, right? Where we, we see something happening, whether it's someone getting bullied, someone getting mugged or, you know, something happening and we just do nothing and i got really interested in in this uh basically from a book called um situations matter and i was like wow and it, it opened my eyes to all these things so i started reading a ton of books and Catherine wrote this book recently and it's one of my favorites so yeah her book outlines kind of you know why we don't act what can help make us act and different things that you know she's researched and studied and everything like that to help encourage us to take action and do the right thing when necessary and i think this is super 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 important so i really hope you share this episode because one of the things that i learned is once we learn about the bystander effect and how often we don't act and why we don't act like once we become aware of that we start doing more and this world would be a better place if we all just kind of acted a little bit more when we needed to all right but anyways down in the description below i will be linking uh Catherine's social media as well as this book why we act make sure you grab a copy and down in the description below make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul uh if you want to stay up to date with who's coming up on the podcast when new episodes are coming out i love interacting with all of you i love talking about what books i'm reading and i've been getting a lot of early review copies of books and stuff like that so make sure you're following me over at the rewired soul on instagram and twitter all right but anyways without further ado here is my conversation with katherine sanderson about her book, Why We Act. Hello, Catherine. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and discuss your awesome book. So let's start out by discussing the whole premise of the book, which is about turning bystanders into what you call moral rebels. So for all the people who have yet to read your book, can you kind of explain what a moral rebel is and why they're so important? Psychologists describe moral rebels as basically people who are willing to speak up and call out bad behavior, even in the face of immense pressure to stay silent. We think about moral rebels pretty regularly in society as whistleblowers, so people who call out bad behavior, in that case often in the workplace, but it can also be calling out bad behavior in all different kinds of settings. So it can be a member of a fraternity or an athletic team saying, hey, you know, let's not treat women that way or let's not, you know, use that slur or that's an offensive joke. It can be someone calling out bad behavior from a 
a friend, a colleague, a relative at the dinner table. So moral rebels are basically people who are willing to stand up, to speak up, and to defend their principles, and and to do so even when they may face negative social consequences. So people disapproving of them, being ostracized, experiencing a career setback, and so on. We've frankly seen moral rebels play out pretty recently in the political domain in which Republicans who have called for an investigation into the events of January 6th, for example, or who voted to impeach the president, Republicans such as Mitch Romney, overwhelmingly are seen in a negative light and in some cases have already faced pretty severe consequences. So there are some moral rebels in the world, but they're not so many. Estimates are that sort of 5 to 10% of us feel pretty willing to speak up. When I do talks for large audiences on this topic, I regularly will say who here has sometimes seen or heard bad behavior and failed to speak up. And many people raise their hand and say, yeah, that, you know, that's me. I have failed to speak up. And, and then about five to 10% of people will say, I always speak up. That's just who I am. So those people, they're the moral rebels. Yeah, and that's that's something that I, I think a lot of us need to work on. Like, I, I'm somebody personally who I always hated confrontation, and I know that about myself, which is one of the reasons why I wouldn't speak up or even take action sometimes because there's this kind of thing in the back of our head, like, what if I'm wrong, right? And I, I've had a lot of guests on here where we talk about tribalism and our need to feel accepted by the group and all that. And I think that, you know, that's, that's one of our, our big fears is that we're going to do something to anger the group or, you know, make somebody else upset and rejection can hurt so much that we're just, we just stay quiet. We think that's the better option. So that's one of the reasons I love the book is because it talks about this need to take action and speak up and all of that. So throughout the book, you talk about so many different scenarios where people stay silent for a variety of reasons. And you discuss why, you know, officers, for example, will stay silent when there's issues of like racism. And this is something, you know, that I, I think about when I talk about, you know, or when I'm talking about people not speaking up. This has been a big topic, you know, for the last year, especially since, uh, you know, the death of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and all that. So, so yeah, you, you discuss how military and police officers don't speak up. Um, there's issues with police brutality and sexual assault. So you also cover how this happens with young people, too. And, you know, I'm the father of a 12-year-old son. I know there's a lot of other parents out there who are listening. And this is something that that worries me. And, you know, uh, I, I'm curious what we can do about it. So in your opinion, are these situations mostly based on, you know, conformity or group dynamics and power? Or is it something else? So when we talk about the many different scenarios in which people stay silent, all of that silence is basically driven by one of three factors. One, we hear or see something and we don't really know how to interpret it. So I call this the peril of ambiguity. So maybe you see a couple engaging in some kind of 
sexual contact, you know, flirting, and you just don't know how to interpret it. Is that consensual? Is that just fun? Is that romantic? Or is that actually bordering on sexual harassment or sexual misconduct? Maybe you hear a joke that could be construed as racist or sexist and you think, am I, am I just overreacting? Is this just me? Or is that really kind of a, a problematic joke? I think probably most commonly we hear about cases in fraternity hazing in which there's a student who's clearly in trouble, but people think, oh, you know, they're probably just sleeping it off. It's probably not a big deal. And then it turns out, of course, that it was a medical emergency that required more significant aid. So the problem is, is that in ambiguous situations, what do we do? Well, we look to how other people are responding. But the problem is, if everyone is looking to everyone else to interpret an ambiguous situation and no one wants to appear to be overreacting or hypersensitive, then in fact, everyone privately may think, oh, this is problematic, but individually, no one actually dares to speak up. So in one set of situations, it's ambiguity and the crowd is not helpful in interpreting ambiguous situations when everybody's trying to play it off. But in other cases, it's not ambiguous. In other cases, we absolutely 100% know this is problematic. But when we are in a crowd, in a group setting, individually, each person may say, well, this is a bad thing, but it's not my responsibility. You know, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, the professor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not in charge, whatever. And so individually, each person may say, well, it's not really my responsibility. This is a phenomenon often called diffusion of responsibility or social loafing. And it's often what is most termed the bystander effect. Then in the third case, and the third is actually the factor that I think is most problematic. And that is people worry about the consequences. They worry Am I going to experience threats to my personal safety? Which, of course, can happen in certain cases, and we've seen that play out. But more commonly, people worry about other kinds of factors. Am I going to be not liked? Am I going to be ostracized? Am I going to be rejected? Time and time again, you hear people say, well, I wanted to speak up, but you know, I just thought... I wouldn't, I wouldn't be liked. Children talk about not standing up to bullying because they worry that they're not going to be liked by their peers. Fraternity brothers may not get a student a prompt medical assistance because they worry that they're going to be ostracized from the fraternity. So the fear of consequences overwhelmingly happens in all different situations. I think most starkly we saw that play out with the case of Harvey Weinstein in which many people said they kind of were aware that he was engaging in problematic behavior, but Harvey Weinstein was making and breaking careers. So lots of people stayed silent. Yeah, this is something, this is something I I, I think about a lot. All right. And I get it. I get it too. But, but yeah, we, we have this tendency. It's so weird to me. I don't know if it's just our capitalist country or what, but we prioritize our job over everything, over everything. Right. Um, and you know, and, and maybe not everybody, but a lot of people, whenever I watch, you know, news coming out or, you know, you, you gave the example of Harvey Weinstein. Um, there's a lot of documentaries and things like that. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, how did this happen for so long? Right. Where there's something corrupt happening within an organization, just something terrible. Right. And it always feels like it, it goes back down to the root issue that people are deathly afraid of losing their job. And I don't know, once I acknowledge that, 
aspect of myself, you know, it, it helped give me some freedom. And especially, I don't know, since I've had, you know, numerous jobs since, you know, uh, back in the day when I was in my addiction and everything like that. But I know I've acquired skills and everything. And I, I think about it today, like if my company, like during my day job, which I don't see happening because my, my bosses and owners are amazing. But if something unethical was happening over and over and over and, you know, we were bringing this up or whatever, and they didn't change, like, it's time for me to leave, but a lot of people, I, I understand it's very nuanced and everybody has a different situation and they can't always leave that job, right? And it's something that we, we need to think about, like why are we prioritizing this so much? And something that I often ask myself in these types of situations is like, will I be able to like go to sleep at night? It's something I kind of learned in my recovery and things like that. So that's something else that kind of motivates me to speak up because I don't want <laughs> these kind of things just sitting there and eating away at my conscience. Um, but yeah, so so in in your book, you you do a great job talking about, you know, both sides of the topic, right? Why we act as well as why we don't act. And I became personally interested in this subject when I started learning about why we don't act and the bystander effect. And it's just this like scary thing because there's so many real world stories of just the bystander effect and people not taking action. So oftentimes we, we idly sit by and assume someone else will help, right? Like you mentioned the diffusion of responsibility. And I notice that, I try to be very mindful of that. This idea like, even if it's something as simple as like picking up some trash, right? See some trash on the ground. I don't know, somebody else will, you know, get that, right? But anyways, uh, so, so based on your research, why is it that the bystander effect seems to be our default, right? Like, why, why isn't our, you know, default to act? We evolved to, you know, help each other out and, you know, be in a group and everything. So it's, it's interesting to me, like, why is that our default? But for those who haven't read your book yet, what are some ways that we can counteract the bystander effect and encourage others to do the same? Like, I have my own little tricks that I try to do, but I'm curious what, what your, your research has shown you. So I love this question about how do we counteract the bystander effect and encourage others to do the same because basically we are all better off if we live in a world in which people speak up in the face of bad behavior. A story that I tell pretty frequently now is about a friend of mine whose daughter was adopted from China when she was a baby and last March, so March of 2020, right as the coronavirus was pretty much spreading through the country, this young woman who's 22, 23 years old, recently graduated from college, was on a crowded bus in Boston. And when a man stood up, pointed at her and started yelling, she should go back to China, that she and other Chinese people had brought the coronavirus to America and were killing Americans. And what my friend described was her shock that not a single person on the bus stood up and supported her daughter in any way. No one went over and sat with her. No one reassured her. No one told the man to shut up. Clearly, no one on the bus thought that Claire individually had brought the coronavirus, and yet no one spoke up. And I tell that story because I think we can all imagine that if that was our daughter on a bus, we would like someone to speak up. If it was our son lying unconscious in a fraternity house, we would like somebody to call 911 immediately. So when we think about it for ourselves or for our loved ones, we absolutely want to live in a world in which people speak up.
So what do we do? So one of the reasons that I wrote this book, in fact, was that understanding the psychology of inaction is very helpful in overcoming the forces that lead us to stay silent. We often think, well, you know, good people would speak up and bad people wouldn't speak up, but it frankly just isn't that simple. That in many cases, good people stay silent and they stay silent because of the factors that I just described. They worry about the consequences, they worry about feeling stupid or embarrassed for overreacting, and they experience diffusion of responsibility in a group setting. But once we understand those factors, we can actually have the courage to speak up. Because we might say, for example, hey, I bet everybody else thinks this is problematic and they're just choosing not to speak up. So if I speak up, other people will support me. Or they might think, oh, it's not my responsibility to speak up, but you know what? Everybody here is also thinking it's not their responsibility, so we should all band together and do something. So in fact, understanding the psychology of inaction is a really, really important step in countering the bystander effect. Yeah, it it really seems like just kind of being aware of this is one of the first steps to counteracting it and, and yeah like that that story that you mentioned it's it's something that i i think about i we we see it all the time and you know one of the things that i talk about a lot you know is just like groupthink and conformity and all that and it almost seems like that's you know this kind of falls into that category so if nobody's speaking up that's kind of you know the social norm but if one per even one person speaks up then somebody else there's a good chance that somebody else is gonna be like yes this is this is wrong i'm gonna jump in because they were afraid to do it alone so sometimes it's just us getting that courage to be the first one but but yeah like you've you've discussed you know here as well as in the book a lot of us don't want to be the first one because we're afraid of you know the consequences of it all um but but yeah something something i'm i'm often curious about because this seems to happen all the time is you know when we see these accu accusations of you know uh, assault or other forms of just awful behavior when they come to light like years later right like you mentioned harvey weinstein and there's a ton of stories like this one of the most common defenses is people say well why didn't anyone say anything sewer sooner and and this you is used as this way to kind of like discredit the victim right like oh if it was a problem if they had a problem with it why didn't someone say something sooner so it's it's kind of interesting because you know the it's blaming the victim and or trying to downplay the scenario and and yeah, so I'm wondering, in, in your opinion, is there anything you believe the legal system and organizations can do better to educate people about why we don't act and how it should be used, how, well, no, excuse me, how it should not be used as this evidence that either something didn't happen or something wasn't that bad because nobody spoke up sooner? So this is a really important question because I do think that the legal system and organizations need to take responsibility for educating people such as lawyers, such as judges, such as jurors about why people often don't act. We've seen many cases in which research in psychology, in fact, has been used very effectively to educate people about legal issues and 
problematic biases. So for example, research in psychology has shown that people will often do what we call false confession. So confess to something that they didn't actually do. That played out, of course, in the Central Park Five case in which uh, many young teenagers confessed to an assault that in fact they did not do. So research in psychology has been used to clarify the conditions that, that lead to false confessions. Research in psychology has also been used to clarify how eyewitnesses are not particularly accurate and over-relying on eyewitness testimony can be problematic. So in a very similar vein, I believe the legal system and organizations need to educate people about why many people do stay silent, why many people look the other way. And that's why it's really important that when people finally do gain the courage to be more rebel, we don't discount what they're sharing. Catherine, I I am right there with you. And, you know, and that's that's something that I think about a lot. That's one of the reasons why I have, you know, amazing guests like yourself come on here because, you know, I'm a nerd and I just like reading books. But the more I understand the psychology and the nuances and everything like that, I, I look at situations uh, differently, right? Like I, I, I look at these situations with false confessions and I know a lot of people watch true crime, right? So, you know, it's like when we're watching these things and we th- see stuff about like false confessions or people being pressured or why people stay silent and all these other things, we need to carry that over to other situations in our lives and empathize and understand, oh, maybe nobody spoke up because of this or maybe this is what happened, right? And by the way, anybody listening, Catherine, you should check it out too. There is a docu-series or is it a documentary on Netflix? But anyways, it's called The Confessions Killer, right? (laughs) And yeah, it is a wild, wild story and I can't believe I never heard about it. But yeah, speaking of false confessions, I just want to get that documentary out there because it is nuts. All right. Um, But but yeah, so so Catherine, I there's something that's been bugging me for quite some time and I need your opinion on this. And it has something to do with the Stanley Milgram experiments on authority. All right. So when I finally learned about this experiment, so many situations started to make sense. Like whenever you hear stories about some huge organization acting immorally, we always find out that it was this sort of like open secret, right? And we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, like uh, just for example, this this happened with the Me Too movement when we learned about how many people knew of the assault going on. So the number one reason you hear from employees who knew what was going on is that, or you didn't hear from them back then, was that they didn't want to lose their job, kind of like I was discussing. So um, although I, I can think of all these instances where this is happening, there's this debate around whether or not Milgram's experiments are scientifically valid due to some of the ways that, you know, the study was run and some replication issues. Like I said, like we see this every single day with all of these stories. So you could probably explain the Milgram experiments better than I can, but can you give a brief overview of this uh, specific Milgram experiment? But more importantly, as an academic, as somebody who researches this stuff, what are your thoughts around the controversy and debates around these experiments? Because it seems like we're constantly seeing people act or not act because of an authority figure. 
So the Milgram experiment is one of the most controversial studies within the field of psychology. It was conducted at Yale University a long time ago. And basically what the study was doing was trying to test how well people were willing to obey orders given by an authority to harm someone else. This study was designed, frankly, following the Holocaust to examine whether the conditions that led to Nazi Germany would in fact occur within the United States. The the common belief at the time was, well, you know, the Germans are heartless and cruel people. And so they, of course, did willingly obey orders to harm someone else, but that would never happen in the United States. Ha ha. So what they did in this study was they brought in people who were told it was a study on teaching and learning and that to help somebody learn a series of word pairs, they would be asked to give them a painful electric shock each time they got a wrong answer. In reality, the person was not being shocked, but the person, of course, did not know that. So the study proceeds with people being asked to deliver shocks and every time the person gets the wrong answer. And the other key about the Milgram study was that the shocks increased in voltage. So it started at a very you know, low minor level, you know, 15 volts, 30 volts, 45 volts, and so on. But then it escalates to a very dangerous level of shock. So on the machine, it was marked 450 volts, XXX, you know, highly dangerous. And what Milgram was thought to have found early on was that 85% of people really did obey orders from the authority to continue delivering the shocks. So that's how the Milgram experiment worked. And there has been a lot of controversy about the ethics of this study. There's also been some pretty recent research suggesting that, in fact, people maybe believed the person wasn't really getting shocked. So Milgram's belief that he was studying obedience may not have been accurate if people actually didn't buy the premise of it. But to me, as a social psychologist, the big takeaway from the Milgram experiment is actually that he designed the procedure very cleverly, regardless of what we believe about how well people were uh, buying into the, the experiment and or the ethics of it. He designed the experiment very cleverly, which is in that gradation of 15 volts, 30 volts, 45 volts, and so on. And this is the idea of the slippery slope. And what we do know from psychology is that Once you've agreed to give 15 volts and 30 volts and 45 volts, it becomes very hard psychologically to extricate yourself because to extricate yourself far along in the process of obedience, you have to also justify your willingness to not disobey earlier. And that phenomenon of the slippery slope plays out in all different kinds of situations in which people engage in bad behavior. Often it doesn't start at a high level, it starts at a lower level and then gradually escalates. So as I describe in my book, Why We Act, it's really important to sweat the small stuff, not just wait for behavior to get extreme. Yeah, and 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 that makes that makes sense, right? And it, it just seems, you know, like that's what happens. And I, I think we can all relate to that in some way or another, even if it's just a, in a relationship, right? Like uh, we look back on our bad relationships and we're like, why didn't I see the signs, right? But the, the temperature was slowly raised, you know? Uh, so yeah, uh, I recently read, um, what's, what's her name? Susanna uh, Kahalan, Callahan? Kahalan, maybe. But anyways, she wrote a book, the... Um, Oh, wait, no, 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 no. I read a different book, a different book. I'm sorry, everybody. It was called like Inside the Shock Machine. It was a very in-depth book about this uh, specific experiment. But Susanna Kahalan wrote an awesome book about 
the Rosenhan experiment about uh, on being sane in insane places anyways. But yeah, there's a lot of controversy around this, but we see this play out all the time. And I think, you know, just for me personally, it's, it's important to kind of notice those incremental steps, right? And to speak up when we realize that something is amiss or maybe something that we don't fully agree with. And it's like, okay, because like you said, it's difficult for us to look back and say, okay, well, I did 20 volts, so why wouldn't I do 40 volts? But then it's like, okay, I did 40 volts, so why wouldn't I do 60 volts? And the same thing at our jobs, right? If we if we stay quiet about this or we, you know, do that, whatever it is, then it justifies the next behavior. So when it comes to speaking up or when we look at the Me Too movement or anything going on, like right now there's something, uh, some big news around Blizzard, right? Uh, Blizz Activation, uh, Activision Blizzard, and stuff, harassment uh, and assault that's been going on for, for years. And it's like, you know, if we stay quiet about one thing, then we might stay quiet about something bigger. So I, I really, I, I'm really, again, I'm really glad that you you came on to discuss this because it's something that we all need to be aware of. So, so yeah, I want to go back to uh, kind of stuff that happened last year, like with the BLM protests and instances of, you know, specifically like the violence and the riots. And the timing of your, your book release really helped me understand what was going on. So in the first chapter of your book, it was titled, you know, The Myth of Monsters. And you wrote about the research behind crowd psychology and how things kind of escalate. So regardless of the left or the right, it seems like people want to classify entire groups when a peaceful protest has instances of violence. And I, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that many people either don't want to know about the nuances of like crowd psychology research or they just flat out deny it. So can you explain kind of how a peaceful protest will escalate sometimes into riots and vandalism? And for people who would like to pre peacefully protest in the future, uh, is there any way, you know, they can, you know, avoid being sucked in by the crowd psychology if things start to escalate? Like, is there even anything we can do to help de-escalate the situation when a, in a crowd like this? Peaceful protests escalate into riots and vandalism for the very simple reason that people often behave badly in crowd settings, that crowd violence occurs because people experience something called de-individuation, which is basically they lose sense of themselves as an individual. So in settings in which we are conscious and self-aware, we often want to behave morally. We want to bring our behavior in line with who we think we are and our attitudes and, and self-present well. But in crowd settings, we often lose a sense of who we are as individuals, and it can therefore be very easy to get swept away. And that's why we see things like rioting and, and violence and so on. In, in crowd settings, people have a sense of being part of the group. That's magnified when people are wearing some kind of disguises, hoods, masks, for example. And it's also the case in which people feel a common sense of group identity. So not just being in a crowd, but being in a crowd of people who all share some kind of values, norms, beliefs, whether they're political or social or even you know supporting the Chicago Cubs or the Boston Red Sox or whatever. 
So what do we know? It's really important to try not to get sucked into the crowd psychology, to maintain a sense of who you are, and to be aware that being in a crowd setting can lead you to stop thinking about yourself as an individual. In all honesty, wearing your own individual clothing can help. Not wearing a mask can help. I think one of the factors that's so interesting psychologically is whether wearing masks for COVID protection last summer actually also freed up people in terms of not thinking of themselves as individuals and not really recognizing themselves in the same way. So again, focusing on who you are as an individual is really important. Obviously doing other things that increase self-awareness as opposed to decrease it are important, such as not drinking alcohol. That's, again, a common thing in which we lose sense of who we are and may not behave in line with who we'd like to be. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting, you know, with, with people wearing masks and everything because it was, you know, during the height of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, I wonder if some of the situations got worse because people were already wearing masks. And since you brought that up, it, it, it got me thinking as you were talking of even, you know, pre-last summer and other situations, right, where you see, like, violence break out, whether it's from the far right or Antifa or whoever, you see how many people are wearing bandanas and things like that, you know, um, and that, you know, it, not only do we lose this sense of self when we're, you know, in a group and look like other people wearing what they're wearing, but also there's the factor of when we don't think we'll be able to be caught or be held accountable for something, we're more likely to do something like that. But yeah, I think, you know, to your point, that's the best thing that we could do is to not lose our sense of self, right? And I think especially during, you know, protest, even if they're peaceful at first, uh, emotions start to run high when there's the opposing side and people are shouting at each other and everything like that. So you elevate emotions and you get the, you know, the kind of crowd psychology factor in there. Like it's easy for things to turn real bad real quick. You know what I mean? But um yeah, so so lastly, I wanted to uh, ask your opinions on how we can have healthier conversations, both in person and online. Because with the rise of social media, we've seen massive polarization and people having this kind of shared identity. Not only that, but misinformation spreads like wildfire on social media. And I've had, you know, conspiracy theory debunkers come on and, you know, I do episodes about critical thinking and scientific thinking and all that. So I'm curious your thoughts. Um, because yeah, it's, it's books like yours and others that have encouraged me personally to speak up and be, you know, a quote unquote moral rebel. But there are a lot of social risks involved as we kind of discussed earlier. So if you explain why someone is wrong, even in a kind and mature way online, there's a chance that, you know, quote unquote, their side will dogpile on you, which makes it psychologically scary to speak up for what you believe is right. And something else that people struggle with is having others in their life ask them why they debate, debate with people online, right? Like, for example, if I, you know, did, you know, was, you know, asking people online or trying to get their opinions or, you know, debating with them and saying, no, I don't really agree with that or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, maybe like my mom or something is like, Chris, why, why are you always arguing with people online? So, like, I, if, if. If people like me, you know, if it happens to me, I'm sure. And I'm, by the way, I was just using my mom as, as an example. She usually doesn't do that. But 
uh, I'm sure people do struggle with this, so they're concerned. So like when we speak up, we're concerned that people in our lives are gonna say like, why do you bother? Why are you being confrontational and all this? So in your opinion, how do we incentivize people to be moral rebels and not always conform just because it's easier. Because when you take a step back and weigh the pros and cons list, it seems as though people would find it advantageous to just keep quiet and be a bystander in a lot of these situations. So I'm curious, you know, what are, what are some solutions for this? So first, I'm really excited that my book and others have encouraged you to speak up and be a moral rebel. I think that's great. And you are also right that there can be risks involved. So I'll say a couple things about that. First, I honestly think that debating things online is largely useless. And I think that in part because when you're debating online, it's not even clear who you are debating. I know there are times in which on Twitter, you know, someone has called me out or something, and often it's completely unclear who that person is. They, they have no email address. They have no website. They have no picture. And I've often said in those cases, you know, I don't have a conversation with people uh, if I don't know who that person is. So if you want to reach out to me, here's my email, feel free to be in touch. And not a single time has anyone ever been in touch. So I think one of the issues is that debating with somebody who's not even willing to own who they are is really risky. And that's in part, of course, because that is the classic example of de-individuation. They're not even being willing to share their own name, you know, image, and so on. But I think what's extremely important is, in fact, to speak out and to be a moral rebel in your own life. And one of the pieces of advice that I often give people is that we, we think about speaking up as being something that's super confrontational, you know, standing up and saying, you're a racist or you're stupid or, you know, you're sexist or whatever. And, and we don't have to do it that way. We can actually do it in a way that is much less confrontational and that, again, is still calling out the bad behavior, but not in a way that makes the person necessarily feel wrong and leads them to be defensive. So saying something like, you know, I used to... I used to use that term or I used to, you know, share jokes about that. And then I learned. And so you're owning and you're expressing empathy for them and where they are. Another thing can be assuming the person's joking. You know, you, I know that you're probably just joking when you say women are too emotional to be president, but you know, really you shouldn't say that because some people may not recognize that you're being sarcastic. Uh, it can also be saying, you know, listen, it's probably just me and maybe I'm being overly sensitive, but my sister and then, you know, go go ahead and call it out. So I think the key to being a moral rebel is finding ways that feel comfortable for you in, in doing so. I actually wrote a piece last fall that's called something like Six Tips for Speaking Out in the Face of Bad Behavior. I wrote that for the Greater Good Group at Berkeley. And maybe you could link to that because I think that is advice taken directly from my book, but it basically uh, calls out what are some ways and provides some strategies in which people can speak up and identify ways in which they can do so that still feel comfortable to them. So again, I think speaking up is really important, but you can speak up in better and worse ways. Awesome. Yeah, I, I've been really working on that. It's, you know, like not 
debating with people online and stuff because, you know, uh, it's, it's like you said, you don't know if you're going to get anywhere. You don't even know who you're talking to or, you know, if they're just, you know, there's the issue of just trolls, just people who just like to do that to, you know, do that and just debate and argue and all that stuff. Uh, something I, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. That's something I've, I've done, like, especially on Twitter because it's so limited in characters, right? And sometimes there's like this big conversation, like something that needs nuance and time and, you know, some conversation. And I'll just straight up tell someone, I'm like, this is not a conversation to have on Twitter. And I'll drop them my email and say, hey, and I've actually had some people from the audience and things like that uh, email me. And we've corresponded and, you know, wrote like lengthy emails and just had conversations. It's, it's really interesting. So I absolutely agree. But yeah, I, I was unaware of that article. So yes, I will be linking that down in the description below. And again, thank you so much for your time. Catherine and everybody listening I hope you enjoyed that episode and please 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 do me a favor do Catherine a favor do this planet a favor and grab a copy of her book why we act it's linked down in the description below uh, because like we discussed in this episode half the battle is just understanding why we act versus why we don't act and when we start to understand this you know we can start taking action when and speak up whether it's at our our job or just you know out in public or wherever it is and yeah as a parent you know it's something that you know i i want to teach my son you know so i think it's something that we should all be doing so please grab a copy of her book uh and yeah follow her on twitter too and i will link that article down below so yeah uh if you're new here make sure you're following the podcast or subscribe whether you're on apple or spotify if you are on apple make sure you leave a rating and a review and share this episode share this episode with other people so they learn about how to be a moral rebel but the other thing is it helps get the podcast out to more people. The algorithm's like, oh, people are liking it and subscribing and sharing it. More people might like this. So do me a favor, do do that, share it out there. Totally free to just share the content out there, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or Reddit, whatever your thing is. All right, uh, but if you're looking for other ways to support the podcast, down in the description below, um, I have linked to the rewiredsoul.com where I have written some books on mental health, addiction recovery, and things like that. Or you could become a patron where you get exclusive content, uh, early access to stuff, and all that. All right, and lastly, there is an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. Um, therapy has been a huge, huge, huge part of my life. I, I focus on my mental health as much as possible, and I've personally used BetterHelp. So if you want something affordable online from the comfort of your own home, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, but yeah, um, thanks again to Catherine. Make sure you're following her over on Twitter. Grab a copy of the book. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul. And yeah, I got one more episode for you this week coming tomorrow, so make sure that you stay tuned. And another reason to follow me on social media so you don't miss when these new episodes go up, all right? But anyways, have an amazing rest of your day, and I will see you in the next one.